Throughout today's episode, I had some internet connectivity issues. It's really rare. And I was frustrated because my guest, J.P. Smith, is one of the bigger names that has appeared on the podcast. He's published countless novels with mainline, big five, big six, big 20 kind of publishers, and has an amazing rip-roaring story about how he moved to England to jumpstart his flagging uh, well, in fact, it's not even a flagging career. He had no prospects of being a full-time, making a living kind of author. And so he picked everything up and moved to England, and his uh, fates reversed overnight, pretty much. That's a cool story, so make sure you listen. That comes about the halfway mark. Um, I left in some of the kind of buffering sounds in this episode. If I felt that you could hear what was being said, my sincerest apologies to J.P. Smith for uh, some of the lower quality audio in this episode. My apologies to you, the listener. There was one bit that I cut out. I think it's kind of obvious that I had to stitch one bit to another. So if you hear that, Again, my apologies, and uh, it is sort of funny because I think it was a fairly good moment, but um, the world takes, the world gives, and you can't fight it. What else? Uh, I've got my my novels uh, out there in the world. You can grab The Nine Lives of Marv DeLonghi off of my website. I always have links in the show notes. Uh, you can grab it in any format you want. If you pre-order the audiobooks right now, you get a great deal, just $10 for two audiobooks, which is better than a month of Audible. Yes, so you get two audiobooks read by the very talented X.E. Sands. Uh, and then I want to whet your appetite for an upcoming episode. I'm going to drop it next Monday, and that episode is going to be a reverse interview. I reached out to one of my favorite writers, uh, podcasters in the world, you may or may not know her. I've been a guest on her show about a year ago. Her name is Michelle Rado. She hosts the Daring to Tell podcast. It is a fantastic show. I've been a huge fan of it. I wait with bated breath. She doesn't have very many releases, typically just one a month. Um, but her interviews are so insightful. She was a former producer uh, and worked at a public radio station up in the Northeast uh, she's got that kind of voice. She's got that kind of insight. She has those heavy-hitting questions, and I'm just very enamored with everything that she does. Super excited that she agreed to read my book and then interview me on my show about my book, The Nine Lives of Marva DeLonghi. So if you are kind of curious to get an inside peek at the writing process, how I came up with the story, the long and arduous path that took me to get there, don't miss out on next Monday's episode. Uh, it's very, very fun. I loved making it. And also, in the meantime, if you're looking for another podcast, I highly encourage you, listen to Daring to Tell. It is a truly wonderful podcast. Now, without further ado, I'm going to let you listen to the wonderful and talented, exceptionally entertaining J.P. Smith. If you've ever watched an author read in public and felt bored, TRBM is the antidote. It's what we do. Talk about dogs, daughters, coffee, and writer's block. Now, TRBM is for writers what time-lapse was for painters, guitar solos and spotlight were for bands, and what chainsaws and ice blocks were for sculptors. 
What does TRBM stand for? Turkey, rye, bacon, and mayo? Tomato, radish, and Brussels melange? Or tightly regional bold menus? That sounds delicious, but you decide. Your first five novels were literary. Yes. Um, so the discovery of light, yes, breathless, all literary, all the first five. And then I went to Airtight, which is kind of a caper novel about based on something that happened to me in college where we had, there was a, a deal we made in Cincinnati. I went to college for two mistaken years in the oh, Midwest, no. <laughs> another dreadful Southern Indiana at 1960s. Uh, not a good place for uh, a New Yorker like me to be. And uh, we made a deal and uh, bought a tremendous amount of very low-grade marijuana in Cincinnati. <laughs> and brought it back to the college and realized the college is just full of fraternity boys and sorority girls, and nobody smoked grass. They just drank a lot. Oh, yeah. And um, yep. so we, we had to bur- we buried it. We buried it. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and I had forgotten about it. And And my wife and I were watching Jackie Brown, the Tarantino movie. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these middle-aged guys, and they're getting involved in the caper. And I said, we never dug it up. I said, that's a script. That's a movie script. So I wrote <laughs> it as a script. That's hilarious. And then I decided I'm going to write it as a novel. And um, so that it was a caper novel. And then I thought, again, influenced by a movie, we had seen this movie called The Gift mm-hmm. with, with by Joel Edgerton, uh, starring Jason Bateman. Yes. Joel Edgerton. And, you know, the, somebody from the past comes back. You know, you taunted me, you made my life hell, and I'm going to get you. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I'm taking a walk with my wife. And I said, you know, when I was in summer camp and eight years old, a swimming counselor abandoned me on a raft. And I said, oh, what wow. if he had forgotten about me? And oh, then I had disappeared. Because he said, you either swim back or you die. And I couldn't swim. Wow. So okay. that's a real story. So that actually said, happened to you. That those first first I don't know if you've read the drowning. Yeah, that was the one. So but you recommended the drowning to me. Oh. So that was the one that I I read most recently. Um, but I I mean honestly, I read two yeah. of your books in about the span of a week. Um, and the drowning, okay. I, I that was a real story that happened to you, at least in terms of the inspiration of somebody leaving you on a raft, because that exact instance happens right. in the drowning. Up until the moment I'm not there, that's all of that is true. Wow when he was threw me in the water and he threw me onto the raft and left me there. So I was eight years old in summer camp then. And of course, back then summer camp was two months long and there was no internet. You know, you sent postcards home and yeah. you, you were just there for two months. And I started camp when I was seven years old. Wow. And uh, I went through, went to camp, to different camps. I went to a camp with Andy Kaufman was in, in the next bunk comedian. And, um, yeah, that is a true story. That's crazy. Based on a true story. Did you did you resent the the counselor? So for me, one of the big questions about the novel, The Drowning, was um, f- I, I will say I did not particularly care for, and I don't think I was supposed to care for the 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 main character, um, the the counselor who abandons the boy because no. he's a jackass. He's never likable i don't think in any way however you still did something in the book that enabled me to root for him in a strange way Mm because i I would think i would think to myself okay what if i did this terrible thing actually um i've never talked about this publicly before but this is a true story that i did and i still to this day feel some guilt for i had a cat for a brief amount of time she was a stray she came up to me um I was still living in my dad's house, so I have to have been 
let's say 15 years old or so, smoking a cigarette outside late at night. And the cat comes up to me and I pet her and she's sweet and she's nice. And I take her in. Um, no, I have to be older because I, I needed roommates at that time. So it would have been between, sorry, it's it's hard to remember my own biography in some ways, between places. And I just stopped in with my parents again for a short amount of time. But I took that cat in and she was mine for a little while. I kept her a secret because my dad's wife said she was allergic to cats. Um, and eventually I was able to take the cat with me to live with somebody for a period of time. But then I got some new roommates and the roommates were absolutely no, no cat, no way. I didn't really have any other options. So I took that cat and I dropped her off in a trailer park of a friend that I had who used to live there. So I knew the place and I thought she's really friendly. She'll be okay. And I drove away. Um, Mm -hmm. And I have felt terrible about that. I've never told anybody till I told my wife that uh, several years ago, and I've never admitted it publicly until this point. How I think of myself in light of that choice is a bit like I sympathized with your character, how he felt leaving a boy alone on a raft in the middle of the water. He didn't, he didn't see a lot of other choices. He thought he was doing the right thing for the boy. Um, And so I think his whole life kind of spins from that point. He holds this guilt and it informs a lot of terrible choices that he starts to make a little bit like Walter White in Breaking Bad or something like that. So anyways, I'll let you talk again, but I just wanted to share that's how that was my entry into the book. I hated that guy. And yet I related to him possibly because of my own personal experience. Absolutely. The, um, you know, the counselor was, I would say, you know, most camp counselors were college kids. First year college kids, you know, so he was maybe 18. I do remember that the counselor, as I was in the water drowning, I grabbed onto this chain around his neck and there was a St. Christopher medal on it. And I thought, oh I can't gosh. put that in the book. It's so on the nose. No kidding. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I could not use that at all. But he was just this you know, redheaded guy, sort of remi- Trump reminds me of him. And, mm. um, you know, and he said, you know, he, he wanted to kill me because I didn't do, I let him down. Because mm. I, I said, I can't swim. So he throws me in the deep mm. water. You know, I was fine wow. in other kinds of water. And basically cured me of ever wanting to swim for the rest of my life. So, you know, he left me on the raft. And I thought, that's an interesting story. I can develop that. The mm-hmm. funny thing is, is that The Drowning has been my most successful book. Mm. I earned back my advance in America and in France. And, and in France, of course, you get press reviews, which is fabulous. Yeah. You get magazines and on the radio and that sort of thing. It, it's a little, it's so different. The culture there is very different from mm-hmm. America. People buy books, the actual books. Yeah. And it's now coming out. Well, see, it came out as a, as, as the ver- their version of hardcover. It's called Brochet. It's a big trade paperback for 20 euros, a lot of money. Yeah. And then it comes out in a little pocket, a, a Gallimard edition, uh, about a year later. And the summoning is coming out in a pocket edition of France in about two weeks. And deals will go up again, which is nice. So yeah, the drowning has been has been very good. It's very very good to me. When when you run into these books where where the main character is somebody that you at the same time that you root for them, you hope they get their their uh, their comeuppance in the end. Yes. That's that's such a, a, a pleasing experience. So I'd like to I'd like to talk a little bit about your persona on Twitter. For a lot of people who listen to this podcast, Twitter is where they found me. Um, mm-hmm. I'm starting to kind of move away from Twitter a little bit for yeah. not not because I have any issues with Elon. In fact, I kind of like Elon and what he said he was going to do. It just turns out that um, Substack is the other half uh, and the more lucrative half of what I do. And right. he started to be antagonistic to Substack. At any rate, I met you on um, on Twitter. You comment a lot on the questions that I put out there. And 
And a thumbnail size, your avatar, your picture of yourself, actually, I would describe as as appearing to be kind of a motorcycle riding kind of guy. That's just the feeling. I know that's the feeling I got from your avatar. And you have, I would say, um, a smart aleck kind of a a tone to you at times that's really enjoyable. Um, You just you're not afraid to kind of poke fun at silly ideas or things that you find to be silly. And that's really enjoyable for me. Um, Talk to me about the persona that you built on Twitter and because it's probably one of the biggest bits of marketing that you do for yourself is my guess. You're traditionally published. So the publisher is doing a lot of marketing for you, hopefully, um, or some marketing for you. Talk to me about Twitter. So basically, uh, you know, social media, when I was starting as a writer, and this was in England, basically, I started writing 50 years hmm. ago when I finished grad school. My my goal until then was to be a rock star, which back then was a perfectly reasonable career choice in the 60s. Everybody wanted to be a rock star. And I played in a band. And um, I'm still friends with my drummer and my guitarist. And um, I thought I could make, I could do something with this. I was a bass bass player for quite a long time. And then I realized I'm not going to make anything out of this. And I had a master's degree in English. I just finished. And I said, let me sit down and write. And when I was a little kid, my mother used to get the Saturday review of books and the New York Times book review and that sort of thing. And I look at all these photos of writers and they just look cool. And I, I liked it, and I really loved doing it. And I wrote twelve books in twelve years oh before I was ever published. And we left for England in nineteen seventy-seven. The idea was to go there for a year, and I'm going to come to my social media thing yeah, in a yeah. sec. Um, I to stay a year, and we stayed over five. Wow! I came back with a daughter, and so I had an agent immediately. And I also wrote a script because I was in touch with Beryl Bainbridge. We we corresponded for about a year, Dame Beryl, as she as she was known later on. And she said, you know, we're all writing scripts. We all write for television and for radio drama. And and a few of us are doing some theater stuff. She said, you know, you, you want to come armed with something else. So I wrote a TV script and I immediately got an agent with that TV script. And she said, oh, if you're looking for an agent for your books, we're associated with one. So I, within two weeks of landing in England, I had two agents. Well, back in the States, I couldn't. Uh, it was terrible. It was horrible. That's why we moved to England. I thought maybe I could make my career there. So I became an English writer. The Man from Marseille is it's written in, in British English. I, that's how I wrote mm. it. And I wrote that in five weeks. Wow. Oh, my goodness. And my agent said, this is the most marketable thing you've ever sent me. And he sold it two weeks ago. Oh, later. my goodness. Wow. So it's funny yeah. because you, you, did, um, you, you went where I was hoping to go just a, a little bit later in the podcast, which is you mm-hmm. had... Uh, no real success or luck in the United States for quite a long time. You felt like you were banging your head against the wall. I'm pulling this directly from your bio online. Um, and so you left for England and and that is where you found uh, your agents. That's where you found success. That's where you published. And you were able to translate that success to some degree back into the United States and publishing here. Right. Um, keep telling that story. I am interested in getting to Twitter, but since we came out at this, this angle, just keep you know updating us. Because I think that my listeners would be fascinated with the idea of of actually picking up your whole life and moving somewhere foreign to try, hey, let's take a last right. stab at making a life of right. this. Um, in fact, I'm right there right exactly. now. Like, what what do I do? How do I how do I turn these books into a living? Yeah. 
It, yeah, it's very difficult. I mean, publishing has always been very difficult. Yeah. Now there are many more options of self-publishing, which is not something I want mm -hmm. to do. I like having a publisher get behind the book, yep. do the marketing, do the publicity, and all of that, and and you know set up readings and things for me. Uh, doing this on my own would just take too much time, mm -hmm. and I'm getting too old for that. But so I had to learn how to use social media when it started to come in. You know, and I didn't use a computer until 1989. Yeah. You know, I got a Mac, Mac Plus, and I was always typing, you know. And, um, and in England, I, I, we couldn't afford photocopying. So I'd write, I'd type multiple copies <laughs> of my books. And, and back then, you only sold one, you only could send it out one at a time to an agent, one oh agent gosh. at a time. Now you can go, yeah. you can spray right. it out there, you know. And, um, so I had an eight, you know, I he say, send me another copy to send to the uh, to my New York agent, my associate in America. And I said, fine, I'd have to retype it. So um, but it, uh, it's coming, I got Facebook and and that's been fun because I've reconnected with some old friends mm -hmm. and some of my former students who are now like getting into their 60s, mm -hmm. which is kind of <laughs> scary because I taught for four years at my old school in New York. So I graduated from this school, which was on a beautiful estate designed by Frederick Law Olmsted, mm -hmm. who also did Central Park. And it was on it was on this greatest. It was the first Montessori school in the country. Mm -hmm. And I was I was there through, you know, eighth grade through 12th grade. Seven years later, I got a teaching job mm -hmm. there because I knew they would hire me because I'm a graduate. So I, I really liked my students very much and I could teach anything I wanted. Mm -hmm. So I taught Ulysses by James Joyce. Wow. I taught Tolstoy. I taught Nabokov. I could do anything I wanted. Different times, mm -hmm. different times. These days, they would fire me immediately. <laughs> Parents would, you know, burn down my house. And um, but it was a very different time. And I'm still in touch with these kids. So I used I use that for that. Mm -hmm. But also, I use Facebook just to let people know about my books. You know, interviews like I'm going to be telling them about this. Yes. They already know about this. And um, once we have a link, I'll send it to them. And uh, so I use that in a Twitter. I sort of discovered, you know, oh, you know, there's also this thing called Twitter. Yeah. So I'll do that. And my agents are on there as well. And I just use it really for professional stuff. I don't get involved in political mm -hmm. conversation, right. but I always enjoy your questions. Yeah. Questions are very, very Thanks. good. And so I basically use it just to promote myself a little bit and Instagram mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, I... I Social media is this really strange place. You said a, a couple of things. I wish I could uh, hit on a little bit more. Um, one being the yeah. scattershot approach to literary agents. I would say the, the majority of people who listen to the podcast um, probably are more self-published at this point. If you're coming into publishing yeah. uh, and you haven't broken through already, most people now are breaking through through self-publishing. So they prove the concept right. themselves by self-publishing. They sell enough copies that uh, the publisher says, yeah, we'd love to give you international distribution. And that's usually how you yeah. go into a house now um, versus uh, I had the literary agent. We we queried uh, for, for three years before I got it through my head that I have to prove I can sell this novel, which is kind of the process I'm in yeah. right now. Um, but I think the downside to the availability of querying agents right now is that people who aren't particularly serious or uh, have really 
taken the time are sending out queries and agents get tired. And so you just have this big massive level of fatigue at every stop along the juncture. I think that that's true of publishers as well. The editors who are getting agents querying them, there are so many agents. It's just a flood and there's really no way to slow it down, but it's interesting. It's, it's worth noting. Yeah, I think, I think um, I was talking to a friend of mine, uh, a writer who has published one nonfiction book, um, straight, you know, mainstream publishing. And he has a novel, which I've re- I've mentored him. And I love the novel very, very much. So I said to him, you know, the query letter is the important thing. It's, the th- it's that thing that knocks on the door and keeps knocking. Mm-hmm. So I sent him a copy of my query letter for the drowning because I had had an agent prior to the drowning for 19 years and he only sold two books of wow. mine. And he would lose my manuscripts. Oh. He'd forget to read them. And I was just, I couldn't get out of that cycle. Mm. And they finally sold Airtight to Thomas and Mercer, which is an Amazon imprint. Mm-hmm. And of course, they don't do it. You, you, they don't sell books through bookstores. Right. You know, you, you can't go to a bookstore and say, I'd like to do a reading. They go, not if you're an Amazon author. Yeah. And, um, and I queried um, an agent at Trident, which is a big agency mm-hmm. in Manhattan. And... Uh, the agent, I wrote this really good query letter, you know, because it begins with picture this. And I, I use that first paragraph of the drowning. Mm-hmm. And I said, and that becomes the story of when he disappears. And I immediately make them want to read mm-hmm. it. Absolutely. And then I say, this is based on something that happened to me. And then I give my background. I published this, this, this. You know, I had a novel that was a Barnes and Noble Discover title, sold 30,000. Mm-hmm. Great. Excellent. So, you know, I had that credentials. And the agent said, I would love to, I would love to read the book. And then she said, a month later, she said, I'd love to represent it. So I immediately signed with mm-hmm. her. And she has now branched off and runs her own agency, which That's is awesome. great. But she also has a vast background of many, many years as an editor and as an agent, and especially as a foreign rights agent. Mm-hmm. She was she was head of foreign rights at Trident. And so she's been wonderful. And um, she sold three books of mine in four years. Wow. The Drowning, If She Were Dead, and The Summoning. And just finishing up a new novel uh, this week and next. And uh, when she gets back from the London Book Fair, she will see That's it. awesome. So we'll stop and talk about The Summoning real quick. That's the other of your novels that, that I read. Um, and that one interests me, even from the perspective of... Uh, the reviews on Amazon. I think that you pissed some people off. <laughs> I never read. I never read Amazon reviews. I have to yeah, tell you, and I that's okay. I don't. I don't. I'm not. I'm not yeah. actually going to to pick anything apart. What I really love about it is that there were people who w- felt like as confused as you're supposed to feel as you're running through this um, because mm-hmm. there are elements of the supernatural inside of the book that are undeniably supernatural, and it takes a little while. Mm-hmm. For the reader to settle in and, and say like, yes, this really is supernatural. It's not um, somebody having kind of like a psychotic break or anything like that. Um, right. Yeah. This is this is something I do. You know, I don't read thrillers. I have to be very honest okay. with you. Yeah. I, I don't. I, I like to watch them on television. Mm-hmm. I like to watch them as movies. I just don't read them because I don't want to be influenced by. Interesting. Them. But I think that people, when they read thrillers, they have expectations. Mm-hmm. Yes. We're going to get this, we're going to get this, we're going to get this, and then we're going to get the answer at the mm-hmm. end. Uh, there aren't always answers right, yeah. in real life, right. you know. So I try to keep my stuff, all of my stuff is very different. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, right now I'm writing a novel, I'm finishing a novel called The Rule of Thirds. And there are four main characters in it. Mm-hmm. There's a detective, there's a pop star, there's a thriller writer, and there is a, a damaged former war photographer mm-hmm. whose memory is extremely shaky mm-hmm. because of something that happened to him in Afghanistan. So he sees things that are not there, he hears things that are not there, and uh, his daughter has disappeared. Mm. And so that you have these four people playing against each other and with each other and that sort of thing. But you will get an answer at the end. Yeah. But in the summoning, you, you get an answer. But it's it's not the kind of expectations that people want in a thriller. Yeah. I they, they want it, they want it later. That out. may be that may be true. I think what I what I saw was that that people people in in the, the most fun way had a really hard time accepting that there was there was magic and the people who who enjoyed the magic you would just see them be delighted by the book i think it was my feeling as well and and you have i'm not going to give away anything for people who want to read your books but you have uh the love interest in the book which is a little bit heartbreaking i think it's fair enough to say that it's a little bit heartbreaking in a fun way um so yeah. I, I really enjoyed it. I will definitely be reading more of your books uh, because I like your style and I like the fact that you have a literary background. So I went through grad school at Eastern Washington University with uh, Sam Ligon and Greg Spatz. Um, Sam, amazing writer. Guys taught me how to do so much. I'm so grateful for it. Um, they were not willing, I would say, for the most part, to step away from literary fiction. And I think that that was another area where the educational track for writers is starting to veer away from what we're seeing in current writing in a way that's maybe a little bit destructive. Uh, More people are doing what you're doing, blending genre into literary. And that's my favorite stuff. When I'm able to find a writer who has literary chops, you can feel that they care about the sentencing, the grammar, the character development, when it's people first and they still are robust with their story. That's really exciting to me. And I think we're going to see even more of that going forward where you're blending a lot of different genres into literary. Um, Why did you start doing that? I learned that actually. Well, I tell you, I learned it from some back in England. I, I read Proust in English all of it. And then I thought, I want to read him in French. Mm-hmm. So I started learning French. I had French in high school and in college, mm-hmm. but I started learning French. And I started reading Patrick Modiano, the Nobel mm-hmm. laureate of three years ago. And he's one actually one of my very favorite authors. And his books are sort of semi-autobiographical, but they all are detective stories in one way or mm-hmm. another. And um, they're very short novels. Some of them are as short as like 140 pages, 130 pages. But they are, he blends genre. And then I discovered a writer called René Belletto, who's become a friend of 30 years now. And he wrote novels that are literary novels, but have thriller aspects to them and detective aspects to them. And I thought, this is different. I have not seen this in in American or even British Mm. writing. And I thought, you know what? this is good. I can actually do this. Mm-hmm. And then when I started writing m- scripts, and I've been writing scripts for years, I haven't done that for a few years now, because I'm just too busy with books. When I started writing scripts, I started to write thrillers, because you really have to be branded with a mm-hmm. genre in the movie business, yeah. and in television. And that taught me a lot about pacing. It taught me a lot about structure, mm-hmm. which I was, could translate into my books. So the drowning began as a script. 
and then I fleshed it out as an novel, yeah. and it changed in many ways. Um, the summoning also be, was a script and became a novel, mm. and 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 a much better novel than it was a, a script. Yeah. So that's where I learned all that from. So blending genres is very mm -hmm. important. You may you mentioned that uh, the people are important. Character is my number yeah. one. Character creates story. Mm -hmm. And that's very, very important to me. And I like doing character work. Everything I do is based on character yeah. rather than purely plot. So in the summoning of Kit Capriol, um, I'm interested in her character. I basically was very influenced by two movies, uh, Seance on a Wet Afternoon, which was Brian Forbes' movie of 1963. And I saw it that week it opened. It's about this husband and wife, and they, they got, get involved in the scheme to kidnap. And I don't know if you've seen it. Mm -hmm kidnap a, a schoolgirl. And then they're going to say is we're going to, we're going to take her chloroform her. We'll put her in a room here, make her think she's in a hospital. You're going to be the nurse. And then we're going to put out feelers to the parents saying, we're going to help find your child. Oh, wow. And then suddenly at the end, re the real supernatural breaks in. Mm. I'm not going to give it away because it's a fabulous mm. movie. And then there was another movie, uh, Nicholas Rogue's Don't Look Now with Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland. Okay. And that's about grief. They lose a daughter who drowns mm. and they go to Venice to reclaim it. But it's about mediums and it's about death and how we how we we become reconciled to mm. death. It's a very moving psychological thriller yeah. and very influenced by them. And I thought, hmm, I, I started to write a novel about a medium back in England and it didn't I couldn't get it going. And now I could do it. But some an interviewer once on a Zoom interview, said, I think that your character, Kit, she has a foot in each world, the world mm -hmm, of the living absolutely. and the world of the dead. Yeah. Her husband died in the North Tower on 9-11, mm -hmm. and she's got this kind of foot in each. It's a twilight place she lives mm -hmm. in, so that she thinks she's just running this this scheme, this yeah. That's what I was going to say. Is she's another character that that uh, you don't you don't particularly love for the fact that she is no. intentionally swindling people uh, who are going through grief. Like kind of the worst time to swindle somebody, um, and yet she's experienced it herself. So, right, and she's helping people. Yeah. This the great thing is that she helps yes. people. They feel reassured mm -hmm. by her, and I mean, you know, like after World War One in Britain, you know mediums were huge because people had lost their sons and their husbands. So they were lining up to see mediums and they would be reassured. Mm -hmm. your, your husband or your son is a lot. He's well, he's in another world. You will meet him one yeah. day. Oh, and here's his voice. You see. So she does that with the Irish woman yeah. and she does it with the accent. Yes, and yes, because she's an yes. actor. So she, that's that, that's that character that has, you could see her two different mm -hmm. ways. You could say, oh, she's kind of despicable. Yeah. And then you think, no, but she's really helping. I know. That's that's life and that's character. Is. Yeah, exactly. If you are able to grab a character who who has the the side of them that's likable and not likable. My wife and I have been having this conversation because in the second book in my detective series, um the the main character has lost the person that she loves the most, but not in the the way that you think. Um and so she's going through grief and it makes her horrible person, like insufferable. Uh, and my wife is like, I don't know if anybody's going to be able to read this novel because she's so bad. And I said, don't worry, babe, I'll figure it out. I will make her likable. But if you can't yeah. write a character who's able to suffer the full realm of grief uh, over something that is truly grief worthy, then you don't have a great book. That's right. 
That's absolutely right. Uh, and 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 you know it's 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 kind of fun because I think that uh, the summoning it touches upon things that I mean we're all sort of aware of we're going to die. I am I, I have more years behind me than <laughs> I have ahead of me. I'll be honest with you. So I think about this you know now and again. Uh, you know more 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 like now rather than again. Um, but you know I'm a very aware of it, so I, I could put some of that into it as well. But I've also sort of gotten away from writing that kind of thing. I'm trying to create, I'm, I, I, every book has to be new for me and it has to be different. All of my books are very yeah. different. My fourth novel, which was until the drowning, my most successful was called The Discovery of Light. And it's it's a it's a contemporary thriller. It's a, it's a mystery story about a man whose wife has died. Was it suicide or was it murder? And it's also about the painter Vermeer because she loved Vermeer and she was writing about Vermeer. So there are chapters interleaved in that novel about Johannes Vermeer and his paintings, mm. the, the stillness and the mystery and the enigma of his paintings. How do you read these things? And if you notice in the summoning, there is a character in there who's, who, 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 is, who has died, who was writing a paper on Vermeer. Mm. The, the woman, the docent at the at the Metropolitan mm -hmm. Museum. So I used some of the things that I used in the discovery of light and brought them in there because there's all these little mysteries in Vermeer's paintings, mm. you know, things that have been painted out. And yeah. Dutch painting is full of emblems, things, little symbols and things. And they knew how to read them and we are learning how to read Interesting. them. Now, if I if I recall right, I don't know a ton about Vermeer. I've seen uh, his work at different times, but there's something about blue in Vermeer. Is that right? I mean, he has a connection to blue or is it just that he's known for working with many different blues? I think he is. I, I, I'm not, I'm not okay. seeing a lot of, um, I'm not seeing that as much. Okay. Uh, blue may have been a very common, you know, wall color or something mm. like that. Um, Vermeer is very famous, of course. Proust made him very famous in the View of Delft, mm -hmm. which is in in The Hague, and I've seen it there. It's beautiful, mm -hmm. and it's this little patch of yellow wall. And a character in Vermeer in Proust's novel goes to the museum to look at this, and he goes, "Oh, little patch of yellow wall, how perfect that is! If only I could have written that way." Mm -hmm. And then he drops dead. <laughs> you know, and you look at you look at the yellow wall, and it's it's quite it's it just glows. Yeah. You know, when you see it alive. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, painting is important to me. I don't, I can't paint. I can't draw to save my mm. life, but painting is important because it, it, it's a mystery. Yeah. Often it's a mystery. A good photograph is a mystery. Yeah. Uh, Diane Arbus once said, a photograph is a secret about a secret. Mm. That's the epigraph to my new novel. It's a secret about a secret. Mm. You don't, it's, you're distant from it. You're not there, but it's very hard. To, you, 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 where are we? You're in that intermediate zone of understanding and not understanding. And I find that very interesting. Yeah. This this kind of, I think fiction works the same way. So I want to talk to you about something. This is a bit of a departure from what we've been talking about, but it just occurred to me as I was listening to you speak, you have a level of confidence about you um, and, and self-assured that you should for the, your years of success. How would this conversation be different uh, if you were at the beginning of your career, put yourself in my shoes where you've you've had an agent, you failed, you're back uh, before you've gone to England and uh, you know your stuff is good, but you haven't had that validation in any level. How would you be talking to the audience right now? What would you say to the listeners uh, about the journey ahead? 
Okay. The, the Looking back now, I would say back then I thought, oh, you write a book, you send it to a publisher, they publish it. It's the simplest thing in the world. It's like magic. It's not. As we all discovered, it's a long, hard road. But that's a good road. It's an apprenticeship because you're always writing. And I was writing a book a year. If I failed, I wrote another mm-hmm. book. Failed. The minute I finish a book, the next day I start a new yep. book. Iris Murdoch taught me that. I always say to people, you know, you've got to, it's it's a competitive field. There are 10, I don't know, how many thousands of books published yeah. a year. You can do this though. You can do, it's like trying to be a rock star. There are lots of, there are lots of bands yes. out there. And a lot of them began in, in your garage or your basement and they became, you know, REMs. Yes. Yeah, right. Or something, you know. You know, or, or the talking heads at art school. Yeah. And it's, they're having fun. But you, you work and work at it. And you have something new to say, especially in genre. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you're writing detective, and I know you're writing detective, if, if you could take a, a slightly different angle. Yeah. And I obviously, I, I take a very different angle in my thrillers because I'm not writing that sort of, you know, one step at a time kind of a thriller. I'm doing something very different. And especially with the psychological thriller, yeah. so I'm, I'm I'm playing with minds and perception. What's real? What's not real? And and what's what's really happening? So you want to keep readers constantly on their toes. That's mm-hmm. what that's what's interesting yeah. to me. And but I I think telling a young writer you 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 can't just write one book and quit. Oh, I definitely. Say, oh, it didn't it didn't happen? You got to keep and you got to write. I, as I said, I wrote twelve. Yeah, thirteenth was my first novel. I wrote it wow. in five weeks. We had moved back from England. I sat down and I wrote it and I sent it to my agent. Boom, done. We, and it was sold That's wild. to a, a major publisher in Britain. It was great. Yeah. So um, it's just you, because you get really good at it. Yeah. It doesn't take me five weeks now to write a book. To, although this book I'm writing now, it's four months. It took mm-hmm. me, which was very, very fast for yeah. me. Uh, just it just sort of rolled rolled out. Yeah, there are books that like are like that. that. This the, the the one that I just finished is is like that. I still have revisions yet to go, but um, yeah, it was it was really interesting. I tried a brand new way of writing. I've never been a person to outline because I fell for the idea that you can't be surprised if you know what's coming, but that ends up being very okay. not true. You are hugely yes. surprised by what the characters will do when you have a framework for them to act inside of. Um, that, that's right. In, in movies, you know, what, what I always say about writing scripts is that it's like building a jigsaw mm-hmm. puzzle. You know what the picture looks mm-hmm. like. And then what you do is take it apart and you give it to your viewers, mm-hmm. you know, this little bit of yes. time, this little bit of yeah. time. I, 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 I don't outline my novels. I have a vague idea where they're mm-hmm. going to go. And that always changes. That yeah. midway through the book, it always changes because something else comes mm-hmm. up and you go, oh, that's interesting. Let's follow that. And if it works, you go, okay, we can mm-hmm. do this. So I like that that adventure yeah. of writing. It keeps me not from not being bored with yeah. it. Nothing worse than being bored with it. That is very work, true. You know. I wrote, I wrote yeah. a, a, some people tell me that this is not actually an outline, but I wrote 20,000 word draft of, of the book so that I understood the action that happened inside and what needed to happen within chapters. So I broke it down into chapters. Then when I actually wrote the second draft or, you know, if whatever you would call the first draft off the outline, um, chapters changed, right? I'd be like, that doesn't need its own chapter to tell that. I don't know why I thought that needed its own chapter or, you know, I completely omit this because I'd rather do this. Um, but having that sense of, okay, I really see this picture helped so, so Mm -hmm. much. Saved me a lot sure. of time too. The, sure. the first book in the series took me five years. Um, this one took me uh, eight weeks. So, 
<laughs> there you go. There you go. And, and you know, it, and it will show because it will show that you were confident yeah. and that you were enjoying it. And that translates to readers. Mm-hmm. It, that's another thing that young writers have to understand is that the way you're feeling when you're writing it. Yeah. If you're feeling like the world owes me this publication, mm-hmm. it's going to show up in the writing. And editors mm-hmm. get very turned off by that. That's fascinating. I've never yeah. really thought about that before. I need to reflect yeah. on it because I, I do think that there's a part of me that feels entitled. Um, I know I've put in the work. Uh, I wonder if that is showing up in ways. Probably at your stage, no, because you're there now. You're 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 writing and you're it's coming out, you know. Yeah. So you're past that stage, mm. you know. But I think a lot, of, especially very young people, you know, you you owe me a living. Kind of ah, yes. Listen, we're great. We're a great, the best band in town. Yeah. You know, I'm going to be the best bass player in the East Coast. No, you're not. But you're going to be good. You know. Yeah. And I there's a, there's a point when as a writer you don't say I'm going to be a best song, I'm going to win the Nobel Prize. You just say I really love my stuff. I enjoy. I love this life. And I enjoy seeing my book in print. Yeah. And that's all you can. And if you have some sales and you get some foreign sales, great. That's mm-hmm. great. Um, I never read Amazon. I never read reviews online mm. unless they're in the press. Okay. Publishers Weekly, okay. you know, or, or in France. I just, I avoid wow. those like the plague because the, I got turned off because when I had Airtight was published, mm-hmm. um, one woman wrote to, and I was reading them on Amazon and she said, I couldn't download the book to my Kindle, one star. And I'm thinking, yeah. I'm going to kill you. <laughs> I'm going to come out in the night and yeah. kill you. <laughs> and it's just, and I wrote Amazon. I said, "Why do you allow that? Why yeah. do you allow them punish punish the author for a, a technical issue on your right. end?" You know, and they never heard yeah. that. So I thought, "I'm done. I, I can't do this because I think you beat yourself mm-hmm. up." So people, you, you should not read your Amazon re- reviews or your Goodreads reviews all the time because it will drive you insane. Right. How people will misunderstand your work. Yes, and you want to you want to reach out and grab them and say, "Listen to me, you got it wrong." You know? Yeah, yeah. You know? I have I have yeah. a lot of fun. So there's there's a couple of ways where I feel a little bit differently. One, critical reviews hurt me a little bit more if they're not uh, if they're not fairly positive about my work because I mm-hmm. expect the critics to to like vibe that's not the word i want to use but it's the one that came to mind with what i'm doing um whereas the yeah. random stranger on amazon who who who's like yeah i don't understand this book that guy eats way too much nobody could ever eat that much food and i'm like yeah that's on purpose keep reading and you'll understand yeah. why that's happening um right so exactly. those those kind of like slough off me or the ones who yeah yeah it's like it's like people who find well this doesn't really happen in the police station i don't right. care i make everything up i don't research right. stuff but my job is to convince you that I know what I'm talking exactly. about. I'm so glad you said that. I need to talk with more authors about that exact thing because I do a little yeah. bit of research, but a sad amount of my research comes straight from TV. I'm like, hey, if I bought it on TV, it's good enough for my novel. <laughs> you got, you got, that's exactly right. It's exactly right. It's just, it's making your stuff so convincing. And you don't have to make up words or terms or anything right. like that. It's just, you just sound confident. Yes, yes. You know, the, I have I have a I have a detective, yes. a middle aged detective in this novel I'm writing now, and he, he's a great character. He just came right out of my head, and he comes right to life. And he's doing stuff in the police station for this guy. I have no idea if this is legitimate, if this is how they operate, but if I can convince my readers that I that this is real, then they'll buy it. Yes. So you um, and keep them engage, keep them engaged. This one of the other things. I was kind of amazed that when I wrote The Drowning, I'd never had this happen before. People would say to me, I couldn't stop turning the pages. Mm-hmm. 
I, I finished a chapter. I had to read the next one. I, finished, I had to read the next. I had to read the next one. I had to read the next one. I thought that's a novelty in my life because when you write literary fiction, yeah. you know, people read a few paragraphs and go to sleep, you know, and then pick it up the next night, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and and literary fiction can have can have its own gripping quality yeah. to it. Um, um, I was very influenced. It was funny. There was a book. I, I was once in a Borders bookstore, and there was a Danish book, Danish novel. And it was on the, and I, I looked at the flap and inside the flap was, he writes like John Hawkes, Alain Robrier and J.P. Smith. And I, oh, that's, I, gotta that's amazing. I got to see who this guy's work yeah. is. Yeah. And I, and I thought, yeah, he's right. This guy very much kin to what I did. And Robrier was a big influence to, on me for quite a while. Um, so, so a lot of French writers, because hmm. I could steal from them and nobody would. Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> we all yes, steal. Absolutely. Yeah. But, um, but you know, it's it's um, uh, yeah. I mean, there's a certain certain kind of a you know, John Hawkes is kind of this unclassifiable <laughs> writer. I don't even know if anybody reads him anymore. <laughs> but very deal back in the '60s and '70s. Yeah. Rob Glier, you know, was was very big then. And then this may, you know, <laughs> so it was nice to see that on the book. So I read the book. And I thought this is great. This is yeah. good. It's a little like what I'm doing here because I had done this book called The Blue Hour, which was big. It got a lot of a lot of attention, a lot of film attention, oh, nice. and it was optioned. And um, script was written not by mm-hmm. me, and it was cast. We wow. had the cast, except for our leading man, and we had a, a director mm. and a shoot oh, date goodness. in Paris. It's basically, it's it's a retelling of the Orpheus myth. Okay, and and, and I thought I'll use a myth because mm-hmm. I, until then, I was never very good at plot, so I basically. I'd have to fudge it a little mm-hmm. bit, but I thought if I choose an armature of a myth, I can build a novel, a contemporary novel mm-hmm. based on the Orpheus and Eurydice myth. Mm-hmm. And I wrote the thing, people wanted to film this thing. Dino, Dino De Laurentiis, I mean, everybody wanted to do this. And we sold the rights, We opted, a man optioned it. And, you know, it, he wrote a script, which I, I, I thought it was all yeah. right. And we had everybody but our leading man, Daniel Day-Lewis, wanted to be oh, wow. in it. But he wanted his girlfriend at the time to play opposite him, Isabel Ajani. And I said, oh, she's perfect. Mm. No, I don't want oh, her. Oh, wow. Great. So we had Julie Delpy. You know, mm-hmm. we had good That's people really in there. But what happened was that he didn't decide on the leading man, and the, the financing started to drift away. Ah. So, But that became, you know, was as a filmable work. And it's hard to sell film rights mm-hmm. these days. Yes. You know, I always thought the drowning would be, oh, it's a film. Mm-hmm. You know, it'll be a film. Not yet. Somebody will pick it up one day. Yeah. But it's it's very hard to do that. And that's where the money is in publishing. Yeah. Sub rights. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. Because advances are getting advances are getting smaller. Yes. Yeah, that's what and as as we what, have, what we didn't talk about and what we won't have time to talk about in this particular conversation. I'd love to have you back, but what we didn't get to talk about is the sure. money side of things because um that is that's the one other area I have referenced a couple of my guests uh, many many times Robin and Michael J Sullivan um he he writes the books she has been his marketing arm and they had just a great run writing uh in traditional publishing but it came to the point where they could make more money uh, self-publishing and she was willing to mm. do that work and run the kickstarters and and basically you know bootstrap uh, an audience and i mean they're they're making 
a ludicrous amount of money. And I think that they're pretty proud of that. And so they don't, they don't like give figures, but they talk about it and their, their books have not been made into movies or film or optioned or anything like that. They just have this rabid following of readers that will grab everything that he writes. And I mean, that's, that's my dream. I would love to see my books made into movies because I really have a, an affection for TV and film. Um, but at the same time, what I want so desperately, another another of my guests, uh, she got mixed reviews from from some of my close circle, Libby Hawker, um, but she talked about, she says, you know what I do? I wake up in the morning and I write for five hours uh, and then I put my computer away and I go sit out on the beach and I look at the water and I smoke pot and read a book. And I said, there that, you go. That's that sounds like that. my life. Like, <laughs> how am I, I not I living write, that life? <laughs> you know, I write all day. Yeah. I mean, I, and I go to the gym, yep. you know, for a couple of hours in the middle of the day. And then sometimes at night, I wake up with an idea, yeah. you know, and I, I once dreamt an entire novel back after my first novel was published. I woke up with a title and a novel and I wrote it. Didn't get it published, but I wrote it. I love it. This is a perfect spot to uh, to close this conversation, partly because my wife decided I probably need to be done and start of the vacuum <laughs> recording a podcast <laughs> in the house. It's uh, It's got its uh, benefits. I did want to leave off. You said that you learned French so that you could read uh, Swan Song and the rest of um Proust Proust, in in French. So I bought this book by Roberto Bolaño, Nocturno de Chile. uh, And I am still working on understanding Spanish well enough to read it. But I bought that book years ago and I I keep studying Spanish. Um, So I wanted you to take some parting comments on how you think that learning another language, even just if you're fluent in reading, not necessarily speaking, has impacted what you write and how you write. Well, I think learning French, I did read, I did again, read, I read Proust again in French. It's just a very different experience. Mm-hmm. It's a very muscular prose in French in the way that the translation doesn't always have that. Um, uh, by the way, I'm a big Bolaño fan. I've read all of them. I've reviewed a lot of his books for The Nervous Breakdown online. Oh, website. so you're friends with and, Brad Listy then? Brad was yeah. on the show a while ago. Yeah. Okay. And I, you know, I reread 2666 uh, last summer after having read it when it first Love came it. out. And I'm a big fan of Bologna. Um, I think reading in, in French is very good. It, 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 it's, it's a way, it's like having a, a cold drink of water away from what you're doing. Because, you know, when you're writing all the time, you know, sometimes you're, drink, you, you know, you're, you're, you're drinking a mud milkshake. Right. You're so into your own stuff and you just want to get away from yeah. that prose. Yeah. So, I mean, I'll reread Modiano, mm. very short novels. It's very easy French, and it will refresh me, but it will also give me a sense of, because Modiano says more when he's not saying anything. Mm. It's what he leaves out yeah. that actually matters. It's like that line in the movie, Almost Famous. You know, it's what you leave out that matters, the rock star says to the kid. Mm. Um, and that's true. Modiano is very good at that. And I find that my style... Um, I, I've been very influenced by the French stylistically, mm-hmm. but also it 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 takes you out of yourself, mm-hmm. and I think that's very important as a writer. I I don't read my genre; that's important. Mm-hmm. I'm rereading, I think, for the fifth time now, "Under the Volcano." Oh, great book by Malcolm Lowry. Yes. Dennis Johnson book. cites that as like the the reason for him, um, which Dennis Johnson's yeah, my hero. He's like. Yeah, it's 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 a great it's a great book, and I'm I'm rereading. Uh, this is the, my fifth reading wow. of it. I read it every two years. It's just it's fabulous. funny that you mentioned that book. that and and the idea of of what's not said because I think the volcano is only truly a good book when you understand that it, you have to really pay attention to what not what's not said. I mean, that's that's I think emblematic of that book. Yeah. yeah, yeah, 
Absolutely. And that's that's kind of key. And I think as young authors, it, it's like the packing the trunk thing. I can't read Salman Rushdie's work. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you why, because he packs that trunk <laughs> so full of clothes. But it's like when you travel, don't overpack. You can pick up some things along mm. the way. You can go shopping. They have stores there. But I remember when uh, uh, Midnight's Children came out and I was living in England and I opened it and I read the first page and I said, I can't read this. It's it's like mm-hmm. it's like too much of a meal mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right away, you know, and and I've never been able to read him. And when I was a Viking author. My editor sent. Um, a, he, he wrote a young adult book for his his kids, and my daughter was a young. She was young. She was thirteen. So she said, "Will you read this to me?" And I thought, oh, "This this is good. The first chapter is good. This is this is good." Salman Rushdie. Mm. And then after that, you get into this, you know, this just this this mess, this stew mm. that's just overfull. Yeah. It's overfilling, and it's just you saying, "I don't care about these people anymore." Yeah. But I think it's when when you leave out things that's very important. The summoning doesn't tell you everything. Mm. The drowning doesn't tell you the most important character in the drowning is Marty, the filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Right. Because the drowning is, hint, hint, it's really about the manipulation of people with art. Mm-hmm. Yes. There are scenes in there that are in a slightly different font that tell you that this is a movie, mm-hmm. that part is from a movie in pro that's being made. And so, well, I'm not going to give yeah, away yeah. too much, but yeah, that's what it's really about. It's the book really about well it's about that really there's a revenge aspect but it's also about that mm-hmm. so i think that that's that's kind of fun is when you have these different layers of things yeah and you can just do it very lightly you just slip it yeah. in it's been so much fun talking to you uh people know where to find your books i will have links to them uh in my show notes do you want them to connect with you on twitter or is there somewhere that you prefer to connect with readers if they if they want to interact they can they can come to my website jpsmith.org they can contact me they can write me through there uh they can go through there they can go to facebook jp smith they can go through twitter yes absolutely instagram and if you will let me know what the a link to this is I'm going to be putting everybody wants to hear it yeah, so perfect. I'm going to put it on all social media awesome. this has been great yeah it's been it's been wonderful so uh yeah. let's do keep in touch I I look forward to further conversations I really enjoyed this Jody yeah. you're an excellent interviewer thank you I appreciate it Thank you for listening to TRBM. The theme music was provided by the ever-talented Christopher Talon. And hey, if you liked what you heard, share this show with other readers because what's the point of telling stories if nobody's listening?